Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. All right, good morning and welcome back everybody to another Regenerative Roundtable. As always, I'm sitting here with my buddy and colleague, Neil Haggerty. And we don't have another guest for you today because we're going to be focusing a lot more on the systems and the processes that we're doing here on the development of our own farm. Um, how are you doing this morning, Neil? It's only 7 o'clock. We're getting started early. I'm hey, Oliver. Hey, everybody. I'm tired. I'm tired. It's been a long week. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Understandable. There's been a lot going on here. So why don't we jump in and talk about some of the projects that we've been going through over the last couple of weeks, uh, maybe starting with this new focus that we've had to put on security. Talk a little bit about how that came to be such a priority and some of the steps that we have been taking in order to shore up this place uh, as far as security is concerned. Well, like... Yeah, really state-of-the-art stuff uh, in terms of security. We, uh, we're putting doors in our house, which we don't have right now. So you might want to write that down. That's that's doors. <laughs> um, yeah, we have a house with no doors. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not ideal. Uh, we do have, like, some nice stuff. And we live in a, we live in a third-world country where there's a lot of poverty. Uh, we live in a really nice community here. Um and you know people are so respectful so friendly but 
alcohol and drug abuse are present there's like a small percentage i would say of the you know life is tough here for a lot of people but especially the the people who've like gotten the wrong side of that kind of thing uh, alcohol seems to affect the indigenous people here very strongly uh, and so petty theft is an issue it just you know people drink they get desperate um and they'll take just about anything which can be kind of frustrating at times because i've had you know i've had things like little little saplings on on projects that i manage near here get stolen you know so it's you know it's just one of those things that you got to be aware of and the temptation of course that a lot of um gringo communities get into here is they just put up like big huge walls and they cut themselves off completely for the community so we didn't really want to do that we wanted a sort of a more integral approach yeah and this is where it gets a little bit tricky because we are making as good of an effort as we can to not close ourselves off from the community not restrict access um, for the locals and our other friends who come through here and either sometimes just help us out um, with small chores in the day or come by to see the animals and that's a big part of something that we want to continue to encourage here but we have to figure out a balance between that and keeping some of our belongings and ourselves safe um so yeah like neil said putting doors on the house is pretty key yeah that was a big breakthrough when we when we discovered that i don't know how i nearly got robbed with that wonderful curtain that i had over the doorway i mean that was nearly impenetrable but uh turns out we gotta shore it up a little bit i mean just to clarify we're we're in the middle of building our house and we're living in sort of i've been living in a tent under the (laughs) under the roof so you know not super secure Really nice though, wonderful experience. I highly recommend it to anybody who's thinking of starting a homestead. This last year for me has just been fantastic to wake up in a tent on my land, on our land every morning and, you know, just go through your rituals in the morning and and walk around and observe the place. It's invaluable, you know, and, and you get to be there for every stage of the development of your house and your land. It's fantastic, you know. Yeah, but so the compromise in here is that there were a few other projects that we would have liked to maybe have prioritized, but because this security concern became more important over the last couple of weeks, we've had to shift priorities in order to just get the the security and and being able to lock and close things up. Um, We ordered a little safe so that we can store valuables and belongings and stuff in there whenever we take off. Um, But really, it's been it's been a challenge to think about how to keep this site open and accessible to as many people as possible. Um, Maybe if you have listened to some of the previous regenerative roundtables, we've talked about this access path that goes right through the middle of our farm, essentially. And we keep going back and forth and thinking, is that going to be a security concern in the future? Should we reroute the path the way most people do when they buy a piece of land? Um, We haven't come to a a final decision on this, but I'm kind of of the persuasion that leaving that as sort of an access route for people who already use it, it's already in quite a a common use. You see people walking past here uh, carrying firewood and, you know, going through other parts of the town. And I like that this is something that people don't feel closed off to or that we're not making kind of the more common decision and just closing off our space to through traffic um, because there's a lot of potential for inviting in the local community as well in the projects that we're doing by maintaining that access route yeah it's nice you know because 
there are times when this place feels like a petting zoo. Local kids come over. A lot of local kids are fascinated by the by the goats, um, especially the goats. But just seeing the sort of goats and our pet cat and the chickens playing together, and you know, they come in and they ask a bunch of questions, and we have the whole composting system set up. And you know, it's nice. It's a sort of informal way of of doing uh, community outreach so we definitely don't want to close it off and we definitely see it as more of an opportunity than a threat but yeah it's all about uh, managing those things and finding the balance right yeah definitely and the thing is security actually is much more than just restricting access to the people that you know could potentially harm or or (laughs) or rob us Um, we're in a fortunate kind of little micro portion of the weather system here, what they call the canicula, which is like a little dry season within the rainy season. And this one has actually been oddly long uh, this year, and we haven't had really any significant rains for over a month now, aside from one instance where it rained really, really heavily out of nowhere. And this was another sort of prompting that we need to shore up some of the things, especially in our systems and our buildings, to make sure that we're not at risk of weather damage as well. And so, you know, these are sectors that need to be considered. These are things that you can't really change or manipulate too much and kind of need to be accommodated within the design. Um, And so the aspect of keeping this place secure as far as, you know, personal belongings and safety, but also against the heavy, heavy rains that can come through here and are inevitable later in the season as we get back into the rainy season. Yeah, it's been a weird rainy season. Canicula translates, when I looked it up, to dog days. It's like the hottest time of the year when it should be the middle of rainy season, but it's like it's hot and dry and there's a wind coming through that's drying everything. It's beautiful. The tourists are loving it. Um, everyone, you know, a lot of the tourists and backpackers and me are like, I can't believe I'm getting so lucky with the weather. But, you know, the locals are not loving it. The corn crop, the tradition here is corn is a rain-fed crop here for most people. So they planted it at the start, the start of May when the rains come. And, you know, you can see a lot of, uh, of cornfields are suffering. And it's, you know, it's following a general trend um, that weather here is getting much more irregular. Um, it's hard to say exactly what the trend is, but this is, this is my fifth rainy season in Guatemala. Um, and it's the second or third. It's the, it's the second very dry dry season I've seen and we've also seen one extremely wet one so it's kind of hard to like pinpoint it exactly what I have a feeling is going to happen this year is you're going to get more dry weather more wind and just drying conditions in general and then possibly all the rain coming in a very short space of time which we know is very dangerous yeah so I mean as these different factors are coming up and need to be addressed um we're trying to get out of sort of a reactionary way of amending our designs. Um, But to a certain degree, this sort of observation and interaction with these things that are happening is essential for making sure that the, you know, the enterprises that we're putting in, the designs that we're making take into account the way that things are changing as well. Yeah. And there's really only so much you can do. I mean, we, we live down at this in a, in a valley here and right up above us on it's pretty hard to imagine if you haven't been to Lake Atitlan, but about a thousand meters above us in elevation, um, 
they're they're building a, a road, a main road that's going to come right down into this town. Um, there's five waterfalls in this valley. They're excavating on a slope that's about 80 degrees at some point. I have no idea. I was up there looking at it yesterday. I have no idea how they're going to get this thing done. It's like a big push, El, el Desarrollo, like which means development. There's like a big political slogan here and... A lot of mayors want to be the ones who got the who 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 got the road the 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 road that they've been talking about doing for years through their land to hook up this because there is no real road access to Sununa. You really have to come here by boat um, or come around a very long alternative route. So, you know, a lot of people have been talking about and promising that this road is going to bring progress and development, but you know, as ever, at what cost? Um, and it's a it's a divisive issue. Um, it and it you know honestly it scares me because uh, this is the type of thing where with all these waterfalls a plug of mud or huge boulders can just slide down. They already have been. Uh, but what you know my w- real worry is that the one of the waterfalls or one or, or the main river gets gets blocked and changes its course. You know, and that would have just drastic consequences for us and everybody else down here. So. <laughs> You know, there really is only so much you can plan for. Yeah, an interesting observation in that is um, when you come in from the lake, you can see the town layout fairly well. And the majority, especially of the indigenous population, is up on one of the ridges outside of the valley, which is at much higher risk of what they call deslaves or mudslides. And like Neil said, the change in the pattern or the route of some of the waterways around here could have major ecological effects downstream. And, you know, we've worked on projects for clients and for friends down here in the valley, um, which, you know, could be severely affected by that, especially if this increase in sort of severity of weather patterns and changing of climactic trends continues along. So, you know, these are These are all sorts of factors and sectors that need to be considered as they come up. And, you know, as visitors who have not been established here for really long, we don't have much of a say in how these things develop because there are two sides to it. Um, Certainly a lot of economic benefit and access to other markets can be brought through the development and through um, the building of this new road. But... In a lot of cases, it seems like it may have been poorly planned, and certainly a lot of ecological um, impacts might not have been considered, and they're already starting to take effect, and it's it's unfortunately just up the hill from us as well. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly been poorly planned, um, and it's like always with these things, these things are they're double-edged swords, you know, I can understand that kind of argument for from both sides. Um, but you know the funny thing is this is a lot of the the people that you talk to the, people tend to come down very sh- very hard on one side or the other a lot of local people that you talk to are really in favor of the road because they think it will bring jobs they think it will bring easier access to them for markets all those kinds of things that that they struggle with you know having to like take their crops and 
walk and get all get all the way down to a boat and drag it and get it over to the next town you know now they're talking about maybe having just being able to get into a pickup and getting up to a major town where there's a big market uh they know it will bring more tourism more uh just more more opportunities um you know and we can't which is true and we can't lie and say that we wouldn't benefit from those but ecologically i'm it really really concerns me well, so on that note, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the micro enterprises that we've been working to implement and starting maybe the beginning stages of here on the farm. Um, we've got a couple already established, and I know that you have been working especially hard on getting those systems to a manageable point where most of the maintenance can be handed over to the people who are already working with us in order to help to justify salaries and meet uh, maintenance costs on the systems that we already have. So I know that we're weaning the baby goats right now and we're um, kind of tightening up our operations in accessing markets for the dairy products and stuff can you talk about how some of that journey has been over the last month yeah look it's uh you know i'm definitely my my speciality is on producing food uh, i'm still learning about the other side of it which is just so important i've come to realize over the years because uh you know there's Joel Salatin's book, My Successful Farm Business, was a big inspiration to me. My friendship with, with Shad in Atitlan Organics was another one. Um, and it's, you know, it's Joel Salatin talks about it. It's this idea that, like, just because you're doing permaculture and you're treating the land well, that you're somehow owed a living. Um, you know, and it's, it's just, it's not true. Or that if you grow great organic food, people will come and buy it off you, you know, also not true. Um, and it very important for us to have a farm that stands on its own two feet, to have a farm that even though it's on a small piece of land, the model we're promoting is, is, um, sort of a, an intensive uh, management system on a small piece of land so that we can get a lot of our own food but also have a have a profitable business that generates a surplus to, to go back into it you know and i think anyone who's done this type of thing it won't come as a, a surprise to them but it, it's all about dialing it in you know it's like it's great you get it's great you get goats and you're like wow we have all this amazing milk and you know now what do we do with it so you know it's like I would always say investing in inefficiency is was a big thing. So we're still working on it, but getting a system where we know every morning, okay, Monday, Wednesday, Friday is yogurt. Uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday is cheese, um, you know, and milk gets bottled and filtered in this station and and then uh you know doing <laughs> luckily my my partner adriana is is gifted with uh with graphic design so she did a great job making up labels and posters so we got a lot of our products into health food stores and restaurants and you know it was like a new time for me putting on a different hat pounding pavements talking to people and saying look try our amazing goats cheese try our delicious probiotic yogurt and yeah once you once you present it to people and then make it easy for them to access your product and distinguish it for other products and have a little bit of a story around it and have a consistency in production, you know, those are the things you need. And it actually does require, to an extent, eliminating some diversity. 
Jeremy got upset with me you guys will hear Jeremy on this pretty soon he had to go back to the States for a couple of months but you know he started a, a great little system making mushrooms uh, and it was working nicely in a little hoop house uh, with inoculated straw you know and he, I was talking to him on the phone and he was like yo dog how are my mushrooms <laughs> it's like man I haven't even I haven't even looked at them um, actually no that's not true I, I composted the straw because uh, I just even though even he was like but it was like I set it up really good so it was only you know like two hours a week and I was like it's not you know what I basically said to him was it's not set up until those mushrooms are in a vacuum packed container and there's like four or five regular orders from stores or restaurants and the system is is uh, very replicable and very clearly structured and ordered. And I really feel like those are the points that a lot of permaculture initiatives fail on. Um, and it's you know it's one of the things that we we're learning and getting better at ourselves, and that we want to help our clients with um, because it's certainly not undoable. It people there is a great demand for these. Um, for these artisanal, uh, you know, high quality food products, but it's a case of going that extra mile and dialing in, picking the things that you wanna you want to work and and, and dialing them in, um, and then once they're working, you know, the goats are working now, so we built an adjacent chicken house. I think I've talked about this before. That's fantastic, you know, now because. No, we have an in uh, uh, and both both things are alongside the garden. So no, we have we're creating um, we're creating relationships around our our what's been our central production right now, which is the goats. But you know the chicken house is built. Uh, they share a they share a wall. The chicken house and the goat house. So the chickens are able to to go into the goat house, but not the other way around. Um, they spend a lot of time in there uh, scratching around and eating bugs and just improving the health of the goats but also getting a ton of protein themselves and what I'm really amazed by is because their own house is a deep bedding system nothing nothing new there but just the amount of food that they that they get from it and they really they really seem to benefit from having the manure from the goat house go in on top of there with fresh straw with all the food scraps that we collect um and so and then of course the we've started to i think i finally found the right recipe uh for their feed which is we i started to buy cracked corn um and ferment it in a little bit of microorganisms away from the cheese and and water and a little bit of a calcium supplement so that is is amazing because the you know, for anyone who's got chickens, I think the big disheartening thing about chickens is is how much grain you have to feed them and, and not knowing where it comes from. Uh, you know, here we can get cheap locally grown corn that's been cracked. Uh, and then, you know, it's not expensive. But then when we when we ferment it in those products, it it doubles in size. It sucks up all that water and, and whey protein and, and calcium and the microorganisms seem to really help it to, to break down the cell walls. And so it literally goes, if nothing else, it goes twice as far. Um, but it's also charged with so much more extra nutrients. Um, so, you know, it's like I say, it's about the goats. The goats are working. So then setting up the tangential systems, which will hopefully also now the free range uh, concentrate free eggs will start to become a, a product. Um, 
and again but that will be about going all the way and getting getting the container with the eggs and the label and the loyal customer base and you know all those kinds of things so look i think a little bit of the thing in this the message for me is you have to be willing to wear different hats you know uh, you have to be a farmer sometimes a businessman a storyteller if you want to kind of have like an artisanal farm that's actually successful as a business and you know we'll finish by saying we are definitely not experts in this we're making this up as we as we go along um but luckily so far so good yeah and you know we're talking about our specific examples but the overall idea is to minimize the inputs especially imported inputs into our systems and to try and cycle back as many of the byproducts from any given enterprise back into the feed systems for any other so I mean, the obvious example that Neil just gave um, was supplementing the feed for the chickens um, by putting in the manure and the other organic material from the animals up above in the system, in this case, the goats. Um, There is, you know, other planned stages in this system to integrate rabbits and possibly uh, ducks later along the line each time trying to use any byproducts from the system. So like he was saying, the whey from the cheese production can go as a nutritional supplement for the cracked corn and the feed for the chickens. Um, Right now we're actually collecting some of the compost or, or food scraps or kitchen scraps from our neighbors here at the ashram, but they're in their low season. And that nutrient source that we were depending on for a while to feed the chickens needs to be sort of augmented with something else until they start producing again. And so talk a little bit about some of the other options that we've looked into to to supplement the chicken feed when that resource sort of dried up. Yeah, well, I mean, it was like, I, I'm, a, I'm a lazy gardener. Uh, I don't like to weed, especially if there's no reason to do it. So when we planted our corn this year, we we had collected so many seeds from really nice cooking greens like kale and 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 arugula and a few other things and we just broadcast them everywhere throughout the garden uh we planted our corn and our squash and our beans and all the other things but just planted them knowing that they would you know grow up and fill the spaces and protect the soil basically used them as a cover crop which is great we eat a big huge bowl of cooked greens every morning with our breakfast um and lunch but there's only so much of them you can eat uh, and now they're kind of going to seed getting gnarly and there's other weeds in there as well we haven't really done any weeding for a couple of you know a couple of weeks but you know now we've decided okay we don't have this food source way this food way source anymore nearby so we're going to start weeding the garden now <laughs> and we're going to actually it's a good time to do it because there's heavier rains coming and the corn probably could do it a little bit of um of being on its own um so we're you know we're going through the garden section by section every day and just pulling weeds and throwing that into the garden and and mixing it with that uh that fermented cracked corn um you know and that works i think the, the final thing i'll say about all these different initiatives you know maybe goats maybe rabbits uh maybe uh fertility um you know quail eggs um tomatoes and fermented hot sauce you can do, there's it's true what bill mollison says you know the the the, the limits of the yield are are, are are the limiting factor in the yield is it is the designer's imagination um 
but also the designer's kind of time and energy um, input. So for me, every every initiative that you start, unless it's expressly a hobby, you know, like a little f- like a food forest or a, you know um, or a personal zone one garden. Every initiative on the farm should stand on its own two feet. So it's like right now the goats are, you know, a, an outstanding example of that. Um, you know, if we go and start doing for the high season kales and cooked greens, um, if we start doing eggs, each of those things should stand on its own. It should be like, okay, this takes, you know, to manage the chickens takes two hours of labor per day it generates this much income therefore it can clearly pay for the labor and give a rent back to the place in the form of in this case it would be compost uh you know so that's kind of and then once you do it that way you can be like okay all of these things are working now maybe we can introduce ducks because we've got these ponds and we can put another small house over here but once again the ducks don't the ducks don't piggyback on the goats and chicken success. They have to have their own little thing. And like I say, each one just has to be dialed in. And that's why you have to do them one at a time, ultimately. Fortunately, we've been able to move forward a bit faster than just one at a time, but it's because we're a team and we can kind of split our time on our efforts. Um, honestly, most of my efforts over the last handful of months have all been taken up by building the house and improving the infrastructure on the place, all the hardscaping and such, um, as well as keeping an eye on the online portion of the business and developing things like courses and moving forward with um, kind of the design and consultancy side of things. But like Neil mentioned, these micro enterprises need to stand on their own. They should be integrated, of course, especially in a diverse sort of polyculture ecosystem like we have designed here. Um, and we continue to design as new factors and resources become available. But if they're basically being subsidized by another enterprise on the farm or within the, the larger business as a whole, it either needs to be treated accordingly as a hobby and... Um, there needs to be another way to, to sort of justify its existence within the rest of the systems, or it needs to be treated as an enterprise of its own that needs to stand on its own two legs. And now that we have some of the primary kind of base level enterprises within the farm reaching maturity, or at least a point where they justify all of their efforts um, and their consumption of resources... Now we can start to look at sub-enterprises that sort of um, work in tandem around the base ones. In this case, um, ours is the goats. There's the opportunity to bring in other species that can be integrated sort of symbiotically with the inputs and the byproducts that we're already producing. But one of the big things that I've been interested in for a while now is getting to the point where you're solving problems not by adding more things or complexity to a system, but by sort of niching down, simplifying the processes and working towards efficiency rather than just scaling things up. This is something that Richard Perkins talks a lot about in his YouTube channel and in his book, um, a Ridgedale Farm in Sweden. He's been a big inspiration for me. And as far as once you get an enterprise sort of on its on its feet, <clears throat> rather than simply trying to scale up and um, making the operation as big and profitable as possible, 
it can often be much more uh, efficient use of your time by eliminating complexity and simplifying the system, making it more efficient to the point where it's easier and more profitable to run on less inputs, less energy for the same amount of output. Yeah, there's a there's a nice book um, called Small is Beautiful by a, by a German economist called uh, Schumacher, I think it is. Well, it's it's from back in the seventies. Uh, it doesn't specifically talk about farming, but it's just this idea that yeah, bigger is not necessarily more beautiful, and that you know I really do think that the future of um, of sort of permaculture and agroecological farms is that artisanal market. You know, for every art for every artisanal product out there, there has to be an artisanal producer behind it. You know, from a business point of view, it's probably better if you if you can wear both of those hats, but even if it's just producing the the nice heirloom grains to go into the cerveza artisanal, the, the artisanal beer, um, you know, and, and, and like Oliver says, honing down and becoming more skilled and more intensive on on the area you have rather than just looking to expand because the more expand the more you expand inevitably the more waste you're going to have within your system yeah especially if it's not managed at the intensity that needs to in the beginning in order to get set up to a point of of efficiency that it can be run somewhat autonomously Um, and one of our challenges is that you know, we work primarily as designers, consultants, and um, project managers for clients is, is a main source of income for us here. And while the farm contributes to that, on a half an acre in Guatemala, there are some economic restrictions like this is never going to really be able to bring in the same type of income as the other aspects of our job. However, we can create a you know, good living wage jobs for the people who help us out here and maintain the systems while most of the time we may be working with clients. So there are different sort of criteria that we need to meet than we would perhaps if we were doing this in another country or in another region. Yeah, maybe, but the principles are the same. And, you know, I also like the fact that we're building towards having a farm that even though it's on a small piece of land, well, firstly, it's expanded by the fact that there's so much kind of uh, unused land around us where we can graze our goats. But also that, yeah, there is uh, it is economically able to stand on its own two feet. And maybe one day I'll decide I want to garden and walk the goats for a living and I can just do that and earn actually what would be a nice salary for um, for staying here and, and being in the garden and walking my goats all day, you know, which is actually why I got into permaculture um, but uh, yeah um, actually going back to uh, going back to a thing you were asking you know I think a thing that ties in a lot of the different th- points we've been talking about you know security more fodder for our goats more efficiency the big thing we're focusing on right now because we're hoping that the rains are about to come back is putting in our living fence um, so there's going to be a great podcast episode next week uh because I made contact with this fantastic young woman, Isa, in Vivamos Mejor, uh, which is a, an NGO that have an amazing collection of native species for a, a range of different climates in Guatemala. I think we've talked about this before, just how many there are. Right here at the lake, there's four distinct ecosystems and climates. And, you know, their, their nursery is amazing. They have it divi- They have all their plants divided up into, into sections. So... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna plant out our living fence with a mixture of 
Soko, which is a type of elderberry that's native to here. What I didn't realize until I went to meet Isa was that the name Sololao, which is this department actually in Kachikil, the native language means land of Soko. Uh, it's a type of elderberry uh, that has great forage for goats, an amazing fruit, incredibly medicinal, really fast growing and drought resistant. I think we're going to make the majority of our living fence and it, it, it takes by cutting will be that but we're gonna every two or three meters we're gonna put these native legumes there's ones like wachipilin and shoop and you know they have strange names madre cacao um again also amazing fodder great wood um you know great building wood and firewood uh leguminous so they they'll be great um and also great like wind blocks uh, and I, I just I'm so excited about it because they're also um, they're things that we'll be incorporating into our our community uh, reforestation project also as support plants to the heirloom avocados that we plant uh, on community people's land so you know just knowing that there's a resource like that out there and a group of people who've been working for the last five or ten years on this sort of like preservation of these extraordinary species you know you have to come and, and, and see these things to, to believe them to some of these trees how, how how beautiful they are so that's going to be a big focus now getting the getting that living fencing in in a way that you know it's it's productive it's beautiful but it, that it ultimately just makes our life a lot easier so that's the beauty of the edge space around here um, we do have to consider a lot of the efficiency of our systems when it comes to the enterprises like the animals and the market garden. But the living fence and the borders around each of these areas is where we can really put in the diversity and the support species and gilded species that support the rest of the endeavors that we're trying to work on here. Um, that's kind of always the the challenge and the paradox of trying to make this work as a business is that Oftentimes, the diversity that you want to put in for a really healthy ecosystem is at odds with the efficiency of the business portion that you're trying to run. And so being able to find these sections of the land, especially around the borders and the fences that we're planting, is where we can put in a lot more of the healthful and diverse elements um, that attract wildlife and support species that are harder to integrate into the efficiency of the business models. The abundant edge, you might say. <laughs> oh, you're excited to drop that one. Nice, nicely done. I just couldn't wait. <laughs> Look us up online. <laughs> well, so um, let's switch gears one more time. I want to talk about one of the projects that I'm engaged with with a client just down the hill from here. And it's been a point of interest for a lot of people who have been following the natural building side of this podcast. This is the first time that I get to work on what is commonly referred to as like a hobbit house or basically an earth integrated structure that is pushed into a... Um, we call it colina, <laughs> a hill space. I'm really struggling between the English and the Spanish because I use most of these words in Spanish on a daily basis. And sometimes it actually takes me longer to remember the English word for things. Um, but the challenge with structures like that is when you press a building into a hillside, you're cutting off a lot of your options for natural lighting and um, passive ventilation. 
And so these spaces, if they're not designed correctly for those two aspects specifically, they can start to feel damp and moldy and uh, dark and dungeon-like for lack of natural light and airflow. And so the biggest challenge for me on this design and build has been finding a way to make sure that we can maximize the airflow and the natural light that comes through while still maintaining the aesthetic um, that the client wants in sort of this rustic but comfortable earth integrated structure. Now I've been it's been necessary to use a lot more concrete than I'm normally comfortable with mostly just because concrete has good water resistant properties. And the advantage of that being that if there's moisture or earth pressing up against it from a, from the backside where it's touching into the wall um, it's going to last and not degrade the same way that say um, clay would as it starts to hydrate again and soften. So finding these barriers, especially in the back there where it's touching into the earth, we've put in a large what's called a French drain. And essentially it's a gravel pit that runs the back end of the wall as if it were a retaining wall with a drainage tube at the base so that if water does start to accumulate past a certain area, it has a very easy and quick path to drain out the side. So I'll be posting a lot more pictures of this as we move along um, and adding it to the projects page on the website if people are interested in seeing how this is going. But I've been tentative to do that yet just because some of the troubleshooting hasn't been worked out yet and I'm still considering some other options for uh, sort of moisture or water barrier and waterproofing in that back wall and making sure that the drainage is adequate to make sure that there's no issues of mold or dampness coming in from a source that then can't be retrofitted later. Um, if you have water problems from the beginning, you're not going to be able to get back in there and put in some sort of vapor barrier you're going to have to live with it. So um, we're exploring other options. If anyone has suggestions or much experience working with earth integrated homes or hobbit houses or any of the above, especially in the context of natural building, I would love to hear from you because this is the first time I'm trying it myself. And though I you know, have some experience and some knowledge of different techniques and building materials from the past, um, I'm always happy to hear from the larger community to hear what's worked for you. Um, if you've had any issues in the long term, especially with moisture. Um, and, you know, I've considered some of the designs from things like Wofatis, which Paul Wheaton has sort of pioneered on the permies and the rich soil platforms online. But, you know, there's a lot of other different context and design considerations within where we are that have to be considered um, that change up the design and so, yeah, so as we continue to do this prototype, um, I'll, I'll be posting more pictures and I would love to hear from the community. So that about does it for our check-in for this month. Join us again on the next Regenerative Roundtable four weeks from now. And before I go, feel free to come and check us out at the website at AbundantEdge.com. We have a schedule of the upcoming courses and uh, ways that you can get involved and come out and participate with us as well. Yeah, guys, come see us or check us out online. Thanks for listening. All right, we'll catch in with you guys in another month, so we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. 
On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.